we should care about this, we must care about this, and if we don't care about this, we can darn well be assured the president will be back at it doing this all over again. You betcha. For the next president. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. Out in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis-St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. It is always appreciated, always good to be with you. The uh, Democratic 2020 field is look looks like it is finally beginning to winnow for real as we are today, exactly two months Yes, just two months from the very first votes being cast in the 2020 election in the uh, Iowa caucuses. As we noted on yesterday's broadcast over the weekend, former Pennsylvania Congressman Joe Sestak, who you may never have heard of, pulled out of the race for the Democratic presidential nomination. On Monday, Montana Governor Steve Bullock, who you might have heard of, did the same. And on Tuesday, someone I suspect you have definitely heard of, I think California Senator Kamala Harris announced her intention to drop out of the race as well in what Politico describes as a, quote, premature departure for a California senator once heralded as a top tier contender for the nomination, writing that while Harris had qualified for the December debate coming up in her home state later this month, she was running dangerously low on cash, lacking the resources to air TV ads in Iowa, and her staff was gripped by long-running internal turmoil. The New York Times reports Harris dropped out of the Democratic presidential race on Tuesday after months of low poll numbers. Describing the news as a deflating come down for a barrier breaking candidate who was seeking to become the first black woman to win the presidency. A decision, they say, which came after upheaval among staff and disarray among Ms. Harris's own allies. The announcement, according to The Times, 
is perhaps the most surprising development to date in a Democratic presidential campaign where Harris began in the top tier. Her departure removes a prominent black candidate from a field that began as the most diverse ever in a Democratic primary and raises the prospect that this month's debate in Los Angeles will feature no people of color. That is, unless New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, I guess, can pick up some of Harris's uh, supporters, but he's going to have to do it quickly at not, this point. Not having any candidates uh, of color, uh, the black candidates, I think is extremely serious. And it really disturbs me personally that it's possible for white billionaires to buy their way into the race at any time. <laughs> yes. But yet our uh, candidates of color are having trouble staying in. There will be one billionaire in that uh, upcoming debate here in Los Angeles. Charlie Pierce over at Esquire today cited Harris calling out Joe Biden during one of the early debates uh, for his history of making accommodations for white supremacists. He says that Harris's audacity shook the comfort zones of a whole lot of people committed to the Democratic establishment, especially those with a history of complicity with the conservative movement. Couple that, he said, with the Kamala is a cop business coming from the port siders on the left as she served as California State Attorney General. And Harris soon found that she did not have a whole lot of room to maneuver and now, he writes, she's out, and here the Democrats are. The next debate is on December 19, and unless things turn around for Cory Booker, he notes, in one quick hurry, every candidate on stage will be white, and most of them will be men, according to Pierce, who goes on to observe that, uh, nonetheless, Harris is likely to remain what he describes as a force among Democrats and has... Uh, and has to be at the top of every vice presidential shortlist, as well as a contender for attorney general under the next Democratic presidency. He also notes that uh, now she'll have all the time she needs to prep for her role in a Senate trial of the president of the United States, likely coming soon to an impeachment inquiry near you. And on that note, the impeachment hearings move from the House Intelligence Committee to the House Judiciary this week as the Intel Committee released a blistering 300-page report just hours before airtime today charging that the president abused the power of his office and obstructed Congress's impeachment inquiry. We'll be joined momentarily by constitutional law expert John Bonifaz, co-founder of Free Speech for People. Uh, who, with Ron Fine and Ben Clements, is also the author of The Constitution Demands It, The Case for the Impeachment of Donald Trump. Uh, John, who we haven't talked to in years on this show, will be here to discuss where we are in those proceedings. Uh, also coming up as the nations of the world gather in Madrid, Spain this week for the latest U.N. climate conference, Desi Doyen will be here with the latest news on that. And yes, on a, yet another petrochemical explosion in Houston in what is uh, clearly a continuing series at this point, Desi Doyen. Yes, the lucky duckies in the Houston region get to yep. have these explosions frequently. Hey, uh, sorry, voters of Texas, but elections do matter, I hate to say. <laughs> they certainly do. Uh, but very quickly, in, in a few other legal proceedings for Donald Trump, all of this happening at the same time, uh, it was yet another very bad 24 hours in the courts for the president, though arguably a very good 24 hours for the rule of law, if you remember that, as uh, just a record of court loss after court loss after court loss continues for Trump. 
at least until all of this gets to the Supreme Court, when all bets are off, I suspect. So let's start here very quickly. A federal appeals court said on Tuesday that Deutsche Bank must turn over detailed documents about President Trump's finances to two congressional committees. That would be the House Financial Services and the Intelligence Committees. Uh, in a ruling that will most likely be appealed to, yes, the Supreme Court. The stolen Supreme Court. Thank you. The decision by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit in New York was the latest victory for House Democrats investigating Trump and his businesses, as well as his family members who also joined him in this suit. Uh, and it put extensive information about Trump's personal and business finances, which the president has spent years fighting to keep secret for some reason, one step closer to becoming public. In this case, the uh, the two Democratic-controlled congressional committees had issued subpoenas to two banks, Deutsche Bank, which has been uh, Trump's biggest lender for some time, and to Capital One. Uh, what's in your subpoena? This year for financial uh, records related to the president and to his companies and to his family. And Trump sued the banks to block them from complying with the congressional subpoenas. The ruling on Tuesday by a three judge appellate panel now allows Trump just seven days to seek a further delay from the high court before the banks must comply with the congressional subpoenas. Trump, who broke with decades of tradition by refusing to release his tax returns during the 2016 campaign, has already turned to the Supreme Court in an effort to fend off other government investigations of his personal finances. Two other cases involving the disclosures of his uh, of his tax returns by his accounting firm Mazars, one uh, in answer to a subpoena by the Manhattan District Attorney, and to uh, the other to a congressional committee, both of which have subpoenaed the firm Mazars. Those cases are awaiting action by the, yes, Republicans stolen majority at the U.S. Supreme Court. But the request for documents from Deutsche Bank could be even more noteworthy because of the breadth of financial information they could provide about Trump and his dealings. After Deutsche Bank became Trump's main lender following a string of bankruptcies and loan defaults that cost other banks hundreds of millions of dollars and left them wanting nothing to do with Donald Trump. But for some reason, Deutsche Bank didn't mind. Over the past two decades, the German bank lent him and his companies a total of well over two billion dollars. The bank's files would most likely contain what the Times, New York Times describes as a rich trove of documents, including details about how he made his money, who his partners have been, and the terms of his extensive borrowings and other transactions. Um, this case back in May... Uh, was described by U.S. District Judge Eduardo Ramos uh, initially uh, as, quote, not serious when he denied a preliminary injunction uh, earlier this year. But now the appeals court ruling uh, concludes the House committee's interest in pursuing their constitutional legislative function is a far more significant public interest than whatever public interest inheres in avoiding the risk of chief of a uh, chief executive's distraction arising from disclosure of documents reflecting his private 
financial transactions. Well, no wonder Trump seemed to be in a very cranky mood at his NATO summit in uh, Great Britain, I think it was, uh, on Tuesday. Uh, but that's not all for uh, Trump's latest no good, very bad, horrible, terrible 24 hours in court losses. Uh, the federal judge in Washington, D.C., who ordered former White House counsel Don McGahn to comply with a congressional subpoena to testify, will not put that ruling on hold while the case is appealed, which is kind of surprising to me, frankly. U.S. District Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson on Monday denied the administration's request for a stay. The, uh, they have already asked an appeals court to put her original order from last week on hold. That order had uh, uh, required Don McGahn to testify to the House Judiciary Committee as subpoenaed. The appeals court... Uh, however, has put the ruling on an administrative hold at the moment. They have scheduled briefing and uh, oral arguments on the merits of the appeal for just after the first of the year. On Monday, the judge said that the Justice Department could not make, quote, a persuasive showing of irreparable harm in the absence of a colorable argument that McGahn's mere appearance before the Judiciary Committee would, in and of itself, be harmful. That was the case that they made. I might add, uh, as the judge did in that other case, this seems to be a, quote, not serious argument. <laughs> but we'll ask John Boniface about that in a moment. Uh, she also brought up the House Judiciary Committee's emphasis in opposing the stay request on the possibility that McCann, that McGahn could testify for the ongoing impeachment proceedings as the committee now considers whether to expand the current focus on the Ukraine scandal to include many uh, the, the many instances of obstruction that was detailed by Robert Mueller in his special counsel report, which I hope they do. In that report, McGahn was a key witness who testified to Mueller about the president's obstruction and his attempt to end the investigation into Russia's interference in the 2016 election and whatever Team Trump uh, had to do with that interference. But McGahn was blocked from testifying to Congress by the White House, even though he was allowed to testify to Mueller. Uh, and that means that any claims of executive privilege have likely already been waived because McGahn was allowed to speak about these matters already to Mueller. Uh, Judge Jackson, in this case, in denying this stay, requiring McGahn to, yes, testify, said the Judiciary Committee would almost certainly lose the chance to question McGahn as part of the present impeachment inquiry if a stay order is issued. That, she said, would unquestionably harm the ongoing investigation that the Judiciary Committee is conducting and, by extension, would also injure the public's interest in thorough and well-informed impeachment proceedings. Thank you, Your Honor. The uh, Trump administration has claimed that McGahn, as a former top advisor to the president, had absolute immunity that allowed the president to direct him to not show up for the compelled testimony. Clearly, Judge Jackson strongly disagrees and said last week that the president could not issue such a directive. The U.S. Court of Appeals, in the meantime, for the D.C. Circuit, has said that the administrative stay would last, quote, pending further order of the appeals court, where 
as I said, oral arguments currently scheduled for January 3. So speaking of this case and, yes, the ongoing impeachment proceedings, the man who literally wrote the book on impeachment, John Bonifaz of Free Speech for People, joins us next on the broadcast as the inquiry moves from the House Intelligence Committee to the House Judiciary Committee, where, if I recall, Mr. Bonifaz once testified on these very questions of high crimes and misdemeanors. That is next on the Bradcast. You won't want to miss it. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. To withhold that assistance for no good reason other than help with the political campaign made no sense. It was, it was counterproductive to all of what we had been trying to do. Uh, it was illogical. It could not be explained. It was crazy. I was shocked and devastated that um, I would feature in a phone call between two heads of state uh, in such a manner uh, where um, President Trump said that I was bad news to another world leader. A person who saw me actually reading the transcript said that the color drained from my face. I couldn't believe uh, what I was hearing. Um, it was probably an element of shock that uh, maybe in certain regards my worst fear of how our Ukraine policy could play out uh, was playing out how this was likely to have uh, significant implications for U.S. national security. This is America. This is the country I've served and defended, uh, that all of my brothers have served, and here, right, matters. Was there a quid pro quo? With regard to the requested White House call and the White House meeting, the answer is yes. Everyone was in the loop. We followed the president's orders. I then heard President Trump ask, so he's going to do the investigation. Ambassador Sondland replied that he's going to do it. He was being involved in a domestic political errand. And we were being involved in national security foreign policy. And those two things had just diverged. And I did say to him, Ambassador Sondland, Gordon, I think this is all going to blow up. And here we are. And here we are. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com with you here. That was part of a video montage released by House Intelligence Committee Democrats on Tuesday, along with their official report on several weeks of public and private testimony from witnesses in the impeachment inquiry of Donald J. Trump 
examining his attempt to strong-arm Ukraine, into announcing a political investigation of Joe Biden, and into a debunked conspiracy theory concerning Ukraine, not Russia, attempting to interfere in the 2016 election on behalf of Hillary Clinton, not of Donald Trump. That 300-page report from the House Intelligence Committee, released just a few hours before airtime today, asserts that President Trump abused his power by trying to enlist Ukraine to help him in the 2020 presidential election, charging that Trump, quote, placed his own personal and political interests above the national interests of the United States, seeking to undermine American democracy, and endangering national security. While the report leaves it to the House Judiciary Committee, to whom they will pass the report after a vote out of the Intelligence Committee on Tuesday night, uh, whether or not to recommend articles of impeachment for removal of the president, the report lays out in searing fashion, according to the New York Times, what are all but certain to be grounds on which the Democratic-led House moves to impeach the president. The report also lays out what it calls an unprecedented campaign of obstruction of this impeachment inquiry by Trump in light of his move to prevent the release of documents from agencies, including the State Department, the Department of Defense and the White House Budget Office and instructing potential witnesses not to cooperate with the investigation. The damage to our system of checks and balances and to the balance of power within our three branches of government will be long-lasting and potentially irrevocable if the president's ability to stonewall Congress goes unchecked. The report concludes, any future president will feel empowered to resist an investigation into their own wrongdoing, malfeasance, or corruption, and the result will be a nation at far greater risk of all three. The report is a watershed moment for the month's-old inquiry. It deliver, its uh, delivery set in motion the next phase in the impeachment of Mr. Trump, accelerating a constitutional clash that has happened only three times in the nation's history. The Intelligence Committee is also expected to vote to transmit all the raw evidence that it collected to the Judiciary Committee, though Congressman Adam Schiff of California, the uh, Democratic chair of the Intelligence Panel, has indicated that investigative work could continue in his committee at the same time. The Judiciary Committee will also consider potential evidence presented by other investigative committees and renew an earlier debate among Democrats over whether Trump should be impeached for his attempts to thwart attempts by uh, Robert S. Mueller, the former special counsel, to investigate Russia's interference in the 2016 election and any connections to the Trump campaign. In London, for a NATO meeting on Tuesday, Donald Trump accused Democrats of trying to overturn the results of the 2016 election, saying the impeachment inquiry, quote, turned out to be a hoax, you know, as he claims, about everything. As House Democrats now plow ahead with the investigation, lawmakers will examine the most crucial question facing them to date, do President Trump's dealings with Ukraine warrant his removal from office? The answer seems increasingly likely to result in a House vote later this month to make Trump just the third president in U.S. history to be impeached. 
Zoe Lofgren, Congresswoman from California, said if you take a look at what the founding fathers were concerned about, it was the interference by foreign governments in our political system that was one of their gravest concerns. That remark from Lofgren, a senior judiciary member over the weekend, echoes an almost identical point made by the former chair of the Federal Election Commission, Anne Ravel, on this program just a week or two ago. Lofgren said Nixon's behavior didn't even fall into that range. So in that way, this conduct, she says, is more serious. Well, the Judiciary Committee now begins its debate on Wednesday with a public hearing that features four constitutional scholars discussing the historical standards for impeachment and their assessment about whether Trump's actions constitute high crimes and misdemeanors that warrant his removal from office. In a letter to uh, Trump last week, Judiciary Chair Jerry Nadler described Wednesday's hearing as a scholarly examination of the constitutional framework through which the House may analyze the evidence gathered in the present inquiry and as an opportunity to discuss the historical and constitutional basis of impeachment, as well as the framers' intent and understanding of terms like high crimes and misdemeanors. It's a civics lesson with the highest stakes as Democrats scramble to move public opinion in their favor. That is an essential uh, factor if they're to have any chance of winning support from Republicans in the Senate, where the process will shift in January if the House passes articles of impeachment and where some 20 Republicans, 20, would have to join all Senate Democrats to vote for the removal of the President of the United States, an event that has never happened in this country's history and it is still seen by many as incredibly unlikely to actually happen. Joining us now for insight into what we may expect from the House Judiciary's first impeachment, uh, first hearing on impeachment, the constitutional standards for same and what all of this may mean for the president and more importantly, the nation is our old friend and esteemed constitutional scholar himself, John Bonifaz, who wrote a book on impeachment in 2004 about a different president. That book, Warrior King, the case for impeaching George W. Bush argued the war in Iraq was illegal and warranted the removal of then President Bush from office, about which, if my memory serves, Mr. Bonifaz also testified during a hearing held by the U.S. House Judiciary Committee minority Democrats at the time. John is now the co-founder and president of Free Speech for People, seeking to overturn the Supreme Court's infamous Citizens United ruling and others that have corrupted our American elections. Before that, he served as the executive director and then general counsel of the National Voting Rights Institute, which he founded in 1994. Mr. Bonifaz, it has been far too long, but welcome back to the program, sir. Brad, thank you for having me. Over the years, John, we have mostly discussed election integrity-related uh, matters uh, with you, as you've been one of the nation's foremost champions on that matter. But if my memory is correct here, you did testify in a not dissimilar congressional hearing uh, to Wednesdays uh, regarding what does and doesn't constitute high crimes and misdemeanors by a president of the United States. Am I do I remember that correctly? You do. Uh, you also remember correctly that it was held by the minority of the time, mm -hmm. Democrats, who uh, did not have the power to get a, a room in the Capitol right. other than a basement 
uh, room, yep. and so it was a it was a crowded uh, room that day uh, in the basement of the Capitol where we were to testify before mm-hmm. a select uh, number of Democrats on the Judiciary Committee. Uh, but we did lay out the case of why impeachment proceedings uh, should begin then against then President George W. Bush because of the illegal and unconstitutional war in Iraq. And and if I recall, at that point, it was a matter of trying to convince the judiciary and the country that they should begin the, uh, an inquiry uh, not unlike the one that has already begun in uh, Congress at this point. And with that in mind, John, uh, what might we expect from uh, House Judiciary's uh, hearing on Wednesday? It'll feature four constitutional scholars. I uh, don't know if you know them. It's Noah Feldman of Harvard Law School, Pam Carlin of Stanford, Michael Gerhardt of the University of North Carolina School of Law, and Jonathan Turley of the uh, George Washington University Law School. Yes, well, I think what we can expect is that the first three will lay out the case of what are high crimes and why what the president has committed, Donald Trump has committed, mm-hmm. uh, match the meaning of, of high crimes. And then I think we can expect Jonathan Turley, the fourth witness that you've listed, mm-hmm. who is a Republican witness, to counter that view. Uh, he has a rather peculiar position here because he was quite vocal mm-hmm. in the call for impeachment proceedings against then-President Bill Clinton mm-hmm. uh, and was supportive of the fact those proceedings should move forward. As you may remember, I was as well, and, and you and I have had prior conversation and you've published uh, the fact that I supported those impeachment proceedings. Uh, but in this case, uh, he was for those proceedings, but now is against somehow these proceedings and is, I believe, going to take the position that there was no high crime committed and has been no high crime committed huh. by this president, which is an astounding statement to be making by any presumed constitutional scholar. Uh, so I, I think it will be an interesting debate that we'll see between him and the other scholars. I think we will also see theatrics from the Republican side, members of Congress who want to do nothing but disrupt this hearing, call it a witch hunt, and say the whole thing is a hoax and nothing. the president has done absolutely nothing wrong, which is, of course, the lockstep position that they plan to be in with this lawless president. And I want to talk about exactly what do uh, high crimes and misdemeanors mean in a second, but since we're, we mentioned uh, Jonathan Turley, I, I, am I misremembering this, John? Didn't uh, Turley, wasn't he also in favor of uh, accountability for George W. Bush during the uh, Iraq War business, or am I misremembering that? I think you are remembering that correctly, and I think it is very uh, unusual and hard to understand why he has shifted his position with respect to this president. And, and the fact is is that as, as bad as abuses of power that occurred under George W. Bush uh, and, uh, and, frankly, the abuse of power that Bill Clinton committed, not, nothing rises to the level of the kind of abuses of power we've mm. seen under this president, the repeated impeachable offenses this president's committed. So it's really striking that he would take the position he plans to take tomorrow. It is, and I'll be interested to see how that plays out. Uh, so, 
since you uh, raised the matter and since uh, this is what they'll be talking about in no small part in that judiciary hearing, the uh, founders were kind of vague in their term high crimes and misdemeanors as cited in the Constitution, along with the more specific treason and bribery as impeachable offenses. So uh, what does high crimes and misdemeanors actually mean? And is it is it a moving target? Is it a, you know, a, a changeable definition over time? Well, I first should say that we've actually discussed this in detail uh, in our book, The Constitution Demands that the Case for the Impeachment of Donald Trump, which our legal director, Ron Fine, our board chair, Ben Clements, and I co-authored, and which came out in August of 2018, published by Melville House. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that, that question of what a high crime is uh, can be uh, ascertained, uh, the answer can be ascertained from looking at what the framers meant during the debate on the impeachment clause. They specifically understood that high crime would be an abuse of power, abuse of the public trust, and not to be connected to some kind of criminal violation of the federal statutory code. In fact, there were a very limited number of crimes under the federal statutory code at the time Mm. the Constitution was drafted. So this is not about demonstrating in a court of law that the president has committed X or Y violations of the federal statutory code, federal crime, or state crime. Rather, this is about abuse of the office, abuse of power, abuse of the public trust. And that's what Alexander Hamilton and others uh, referenced in the uh, writings of the uh, Constitution and the Federalist Papers uh, and I, I think the history, the precedent that we have here also demonstrate that, not not just with respect to prior impeachments of uh, the presidents, we've, of course, going into the fourth one mm-hmm. here, but also with respect uh, to impeachments of judges that have occurred in our history, uh, and the, the, the standard being, again, the same that needs to be applied here. And so the question really is whether this president has abused the office of the presidency has essentially abused the power for his own personal gain uh, in the case of the Ukraine scandal to bribe and extort the Ukrainian government to assist his re-election campaign, has abused the power to obstruct justice with respect to the Mueller investigation, uh, has in, in our document that we've put on our site, freespeechreview.org, with a coalition of groups joining us, we've laid out a number of impeachment articles that should be presented in Congress that go beyond this Ukraine scandal mm-hmm. that include racist abuses of power, the abuses of power at the southern border, separating children and their families, violating their constitutional rights, the abuse of the pardon power and the pardon of former Sheriff uh, Maricopa County Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Mm-hmm. The list goes on, and, and this president needs to be held accountable for the full range of his high crimes. I mean, it sounds like uh, the way you describe high crimes and misdemeanors, that uh, just the uh, Ukraine case alone seems to be a textbook example of that, a case where it may not necessarily be a a statutory crime, or it might be, but not necessarily a crime to withhold the the money that was, uh, you know, uh, voted on by Congress to go to Ukraine, but the president used his power to do so and uh, was able to use the power of the office 
to leverage that against Ukraine to get something that he wanted for personal gain. All of those points may not be actual crimes, but they sound like they fit the uh, the definition of high crimes and misdemeanors, which, you know, as you note, was put in place at a time when there were not very many crimes actually spelled out yet by the founders and, and, and by Congress. This sounds like a textbook uh, open and shut case, John. I think it is. And I think the only thing that's preventing it from moving forward swiftly in in the House and into the Senate is a party, by and large, a Republican party that's lockstep uh, with this lawless president, either out of fear of their own political career putting party over country or their personal interests over country, or literally because they somehow buy into uh, the idea that they should distort the truth and spew these lies to the American people. So it's a very dangerous moment for our country because, of course, during the Watergate scandal, we saw Republicans who initially were very resistant to the impeachment process moving forward against President Nixon come around after the facts were laid out, after they understood Mm -hmm. what President Nixon had done with that office and the abuse of power he had committed. And by the time of the House Judiciary Committee vote on the three articles of impeachment against President Nixon, there were Republicans that joined in voting for those articles. And, of course, it was pretty clear uh, to many, uh, including then Nixon finally, that he would get convicted in the Senate if the process were to move forward. So here we have a very different scenario uh, where we have, it appears, a Republican Party that uh, is going to stay in full force with the president and his claims this is a hoax and a witch hunt. Uh, and so the the truth is up against, uh, you know, this spin machine mm. of trying to distort the truth. Mm-hmm. And as we move into the Senate trial, uh, the evidence will be laid out again. Uh, but the question will be, you know, how the American people respond. John uh, Boniface, there's a couple of uh, corollary issues here uh, that have been bubbling up over the past 24 hours I want to ask you about. On Monday night, the federal judge in D.C. who recently ordered uh, uh, former White House counsel Don McGahn to testify to the Judiciary Committee in response to their subpoena, uh, that judge refused McGahn and the, the DOJ's request for a stay while they seek a second opinion on the matter from the uh, the D.C. Court of Appeals. Now, the DOJ's argument was essentially that the presidency and its right to assert a so-called absolute immunity privileged privilege would be irreparably harmed if McGahn was forced to appear before his appeal was heard. But Judge uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson wrote that the DOJ, quote, did not make a persuasive showing of irreparable harm. So first, how unusual is that, that this stay was not granted? I mean, it seems like these judges always issue stays pending appeals especially in a case as high-profile as this. Should I read anything into that? I think you can read into it what the judge said in that uh, opinion, which is that this theory uh, that the White House is putting forward and the Department of Justice is putting forward has no precedent um, and is, you know, frankly, absurd. She didn't use that word, but Mm -hmm. that's the essence of what uh, she's written. And I don't think that the president will prevail on appeal, and and she rightly thought that the public interest was best served to have Don McGahn 
force to testify. This this claim, this this idea of absolute immunity, has no basis in the law, no basis in court precedent, um, and they are basically trying to run out the clock here. What they're really aiming to do here is to tie this matter up in the courts until the election um, mm-hmm. and and prevent uh, any further information coming out via Don McGahn or the others who have been subpoenaed and refused to testify. Now, now, while there's nothing, they seem to have made up absolute immunity out of whole cloth, there is a privilege called executive privilege, and yes. the, the judge notes that if uh, McGahn wanted to invoke that, that, that he does have to show up to testify, but he could show up and just claim executive privilege on all of these matters. And if he did do that, John, w- what happens next? The hearing then ends and they go back to court to, to get another decision? yes. I think you end up back in court over those claims of executive privilege, and it's hard to see why Don McGahn would prevail on those claims because much of what he's being asked to testify about, he's already shared with Robert Mueller. So mm-hmm. if it was good enough to share with Robert Mueller, it's good enough to share with the United States Congress. There's no executive privilege uh, that, that he can maintain. But, you know, that, that is, you are correct. There will be a new court fight over that. Mm. And to avoid, I guess, some of those court fights, I've seen a lot of talk uh, of late, the Democrats in the House, that they're that they're not going to wait for the courts to adjudicate whether other folks like uh, John Bolton and Mick Mulvaney and so forth, whether they should be forced to testify. Rather, it seems the strategy is just to wait until an actual impeachment trial in the U.S. Senate and call those folks as witnesses, at which time... If I understand this, John, the presiding judge in the Senate, which would be Chief Justice John Roberts, he would then have to make the call about whether those witnesses should or shouldn't appear right then and there. We don't have to go through the process of going to the Supreme Court. John Roberts, I guess, just makes that decision. If I understand that correctly, what justification would Roberts have for not allowing first-hand witnesses like John Bolton and Mick Mulvaney and so forth to uh, to testify in a case that they had first-hand knowledge of? I think that what we might end up seeing is Justice Roberts apply the argument these matters are still pending in the federal courts, and so he's not going to override that. I think it would be a wrong decision, wow. but I could see how he would try to make that argument. But I think we ought to rewind back on this point to January of this year, when the House shifted control, Nancy Pelosi became Speaker of the House again, and there was an opportunity for the House Democrats who were then in charge to start the process of an impeachment inquiry. Mm -hmm. They refused to do so, despite all the evidence up until that point. They didn't need the Mueller report to start it. There was so much that the President already committed in terms of abuses of power by January of 2019 that could have justified their starting that impeachment inquiry. Imagine if they had done that then and initiated these court fights then. Mm. We would be in a much different position today. But they dragged their feet. They refused to start that inquiry for many months. Uh, and, of course, Speaker Pelosi was not even for it until late September. Mm-hmm. And so we are where we are in part because of the unwillingness of the Democratic leadership in the House to do its duty the moment it assumed control mm-hmm. of the House of Representatives. They ran on a platform in 2018 to be a check on this presidency, and it took another nine months into their mm-hmm. holding of the House control 
to start that process of being a check on this presidency, and that's why uh, we're in this predicament here. I do think that the House needs to move forward expeditiously with articles of impeachment, but I also think that it can continue this impeachment process even after it sends a certain number of articles to the Senate. And many of the offenses that we've outlined in our draft articles that we've submitted to the House Judiciary Committee already have overwhelming evidence to justify those articles uh, to be sent to the Senate. So there isn't a need for a long investigation here. But the court fights could have started back in January of 2019. They didn't have to wait so many months. Well, it'll be interesting to see, uh, and I agree with you, by the way, John, it'll be interesting to see what happens if they do wait for a Senate trial to call these people, uh, these witnesses, what Chief Justice John Roberts does, because also at that point, it seems to me that Republicans in that same case would then have the right to seek testimony from anyone they wanted for the president's defense, whether it's Hunter Biden or the, uh, the still unknown whistleblower or even Congressman Adam Schiff, who they've been claiming they want to uh, put into that same situation. So there's a lot of unknowns there, I think, that lie ahead. Uh, one last uh, point I want to run by you, John. Um, I don't know if you saw this from uh, Robert Reich in uh, uh, Newsweek today. He says that re- regardless of whether a sitting president can be indicted and convicted on uh, these uh, charges, tr- uh, on, on criminal charges, and he outlines a bunch of them that Trump would be criminally liable for after Uh, leaving office. He says that Trump will become liable to them at some point, but he could be pardoned as Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon 40 years ago. No, he says that Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution gives a president the power to pardon anyone who has been convicted of offenses except in the case of impeachment. So Reich goes on to argue that if Trump is impeached by the House, he can never be pardoned for those crimes and he can't self-pardon himself or even have a a future president pardon him for that. Uh, Do you concur with Robert Reich's uh, assessment there that even if he's not removed from office, that impeachment would make him unpardonable? Well, I, I agree with the legal argument. But I also think we have to deal with the reality that if Donald Trump were to get himself pardoned or somehow quit just before, uh, you know, the new presidency and have Pence pardon him, in either scenario, what we will then have is a court fight over the relevance of that pardon to mm-hmm. those underlying crimes that the impeachment process addressed. So I agree with Robert Reich's argument on a legal standpoint. I don't think that automatically means he will not try uh, to escape liability by getting himself pardoned. And, of course, that all goes back to the Supreme Court, which the Republicans stole for for themselves and uh, Trump has packed with his two ringers. So, yeah, I guess it all ends up at the uh, at SCOTUS, doesn't it, John? Uh. <laughs> it very well could. Yep. I think it will be a real test for the integrity of that court. There already are other tests that that court is facing and has faced dating back to, of course, Bush v. Gore and uh, even prior precedent. But I, but I do think that what's critical with all of this is that we as a people stay alert, awake, and engaged in fighting for our democracy and our Constitution because we cannot rely on those in power to save us and to save our democracy. We have to fight to protect it and fight to protect our republic. 
Thank you. I agree. And uh, you have been doing that, John Boniface, for decades now. And I'm always delighted that uh, you're uh, willing to join us to talk about it, uh, to work together on these issues. I look forward, actually, to speaking with you in the not-too-distant future about free speech for people and your campaign uh, to, you know, to, to end these, uh, well, some of these pending catastrophes we see with the unverifiable touchscreen BMD systems that are now proliferating and, yes, overturning Citizens United in one way or another. It's kind of amazing how the national emergency that is Donald Trump has uh, pushed so much like your important fight to overturn uh, Citizens United so far to the back pages. So I look forward to a day when that is not the case, John. Brad, I look forward to it as well. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you, brother. Uh, John Bonifaz, co-founder and president of Free Speech for People, which you can find at freespeechforpeople.org. You can follow them on the Twitters at FSFP, and you can and should follow John himself on the Twitters at John Bonifaz. Thanks, John. Thank you, Brad. And oh, yeah, John's book. Uh, on impeachment with Ron Fine and Ben Clements is The Constitution Demands It, the case for the impeachment of Donald Trump. Grab yours just in time for Christmas. We'll link to it at bradblog.com. All right, quick break, and we are back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report right here on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. <laughs> The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. You know what, Desi Doyen, uh, the other problem with impeachment is that it seems to shortchange you when it comes to the Green <laughs> News Report. We've had to cancel some Green News Reports lately because of impeachment. Yep. Then there was Thanksgiving. It's always the Green News Report that pays the price. <laughs> just, Ain't that just the way? Yeah, just like the environment. Uh, anyway, uh, well, let's get to it then. Our latest Green News Report. The point of no return is no longer over the horizon. It is in sight and earthling towards us. UN Climate Summit kicks off as Bleak Report warns world on track for catastrophic warming. A different study finds dangerous planetary tipping points closer than predicted, plus... The Parker family was forced to spend the Thanksgiving holiday away from home after a petrochemical plant explosion forced them and more than 50,000 other people to evacuate. Happy holidays from the Texas petrochemical industry. All of that happiness and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. What is still lacking is political will. Political will to stop subsidies on fossil fuels. Did he say fossil fuels? Yes, he did. The other option is the path of hope. A path where more fossil fuels remain where they should be, in the ground. I like this UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, setting aside the fossil fuels for a moment... I have lost track of how many petrochemical explosions there have been in Texas 
in just the last year or two. Exactly. And it's mostly in Houston, where a mandatory evacuation order has been lifted in the town of Port Neches after a series of explosions at the TPC Group petrochemical refinery with a long history of violating environmental laws. Nearly 50,000 people were forced to evacuate their homes over the Thanksgiving holiday after multiple explosions last week literally blew off doors and windows of homes and generated massive clouds of toxic black smoke. As we go to air, the cause remains unknown, but the facility is still burning, and county officials say air quality remains within legal limits. Mm-hmm. It's the latest in a series of dangerous and deadly explosions in Texas' petrochemical corridor this year. Now, if I remember, didn't Republican Governor Greg Abbott, when he came to office, sign some rules making it easier for these petrochemicals to be kept a secret from the public? Yes, he did. And even more importantly, the latest explosion occurred less than a week after the Trump Environmental Protection Agency rescinded Obama-era chemical safety rules that had been put in place after the deadly West Texas fertilizer explosion in 2013. That rescinded rule would have helped prevent such dangerous chemical explosions and would have protected first responders and the nearly 180 million Americans who live near such facilities. I say we move these facilities outside the governor's mansion and the White House instead of outside our kids' high schools and retirement homes. Meanwhile, in Madrid, Spain, the 2019 United Nations Climate Change Conference is now underway for the next round of international negotiations to forge a comprehensive global pact under the Paris Climate Agreement, in which all nations have agreed to cut the greenhouse gas emissions that cause dangerous man-made climate change. This year's summit is intended for nations to ratchet up their ambitions in accordance with their capabilities and to hammer out technical mechanisms of reporting and finance. Not surprisingly, President Trump, a climate science denier, is not attending the climate summit. Trump's withdrawal of the U.S. from the U.N. Paris Climate Agreement isn't official until the day after the presidential election in 2020. So Trump staffers are in Madrid to help influence the negotiations. Yeah, I think they sent some senior diplomat or something from the State Department instead of, you know, the president of the United States. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is leading a delegation of House Democrats. Oh, she went. Yep, to reassure other nations that Congress remains committed to the Paris Agreement's goals. The summit coincides with two disturbing new studies. The annual UN Emissions Gap Report has found that nations' current emissions cuts are insufficient, and it warns that currently the world is on pace to warm a catastrophic 4 degrees Celsius by 2100. Jesus. A second report in the the journal Nature warns that humanity is now closer than ever to triggering dangerous planetary tipping points sooner than forecast, like irreversible melting of ice sheets and acidifying oceans. In his speech opening the summit, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres rebuked the world's biggest emitters for not doing enough to cut their emissions and noted that we have almost all of the technical tools we need to make reductions, except for one thing. What is still lacking is political will. While Guterres noted what he called signs of hope, he also warned humanity is in a deep hole and still digging, and the world is rapidly approaching a point of no return. By the end of the coming decade, we will be on one of two paths. One is the path of surrender, where we have sleepwalked past the point of no return, jeopardizing the health and safety of everyone on this planet. Do we really want to be remembered as the generation that buried its head in the sand, that fiddled 
while the planet burns? Apparently so. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyne. And this has been your Green News Report. So how long do we have until the point of no return? Well, anyway? effectively, both of those reports on the tipping points and the United Nations grim, emissions grim gap. Grim reports, both of them. Indeed they are. Both very dire. Both reports basically say we have to be on track to cut our emissions in half by 2030 and be at net zero emissions by 2050. And we are so far behind right now that had we acted in 2004, we could have cut emissions by 3% a year and still made it. Now we have to start cutting emissions by 7 to 15 percent a year in order to make the 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold. So when Donald Trump's out there asking, uh, answering questions about uh, all of this and he tells people that uh, people who are concerned about climate change, Democrats and so forth, say we're all going to die in 10 or 11 years. He's lying. He's lying. That's yes. not what they're saying. Or stupid or both. Yeah. Well, yeah. So what they're saying is that we have to be on track. We have to figure this out. We have to already begin making these cuts. Or if we don't, in 10 or 11 years, we, we are will, screwed. Yeah, we are screwed. We and will have, uh, we will risk triggering irreversible planetary tipping points. So yeah, the window is closing. So the point of no return, meaning that even if we suddenly took every action in the world, it would be too late because there's too much uh, greenhouse gases, carbon and so forth in the atmosphere. And those tipping points have flipped. So yes. All right. Thank you for ending that on a happy <laughs> note. As usual, Desi Doyen, our producer, and thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us if you missed any portion of today's program or any other broadcast ever you can download it for free at bradblog.com that is made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate and it's really easy to help uh, support our work here on uh, over your public airwaves in particular we thank those of you who keep us in mind for your end of year giving at bradblog.com slash donate. We couldn't be here without you. Drop me an email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Was it you?